We've been looking through the book of Ephesians for the past group of weeks. I really do love this book, and, uh, and I'm grateful that we have time to, to be able to, to spend looking through it together. And this morning, as we look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be talking about the fact that God will supply the strength that you need. And it's interesting when you look at what the Apostle Paul says in this portion of Scripture, because he shows us not just the fact that that strength will be supplied, but how that strength is supplied. And it's very significant, because a lot of times people talk about obtaining strength, and they, they mean that in very surface-level ways or very superficial ways, or we could even say in ways that don't have eternal consequence. But when you look at what this portion of Scripture tells us and shows us about the strength that God supplies to us, we're shown something that has eternal consequence, and it's not something that we could just invent or something that we could come up with in our own strength. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up at verse 14. So Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 14, and this is what it says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together and to to think about the things that you've revealed to us in it. And Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this portion of Scripture this morning, as we start off our week looking at the second half of Ephesians chapter 3, we pray, Lord, that we would understand what you've communicated to us here. We pray that we would understand the, the nature of the strength that you supply and the way in which you supply it and why that matters. And Lord, we're grateful to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this in the midst of a season where I think it's very obvious to us that that your strength is what is needed to carry the day. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you for the privilege to be able to look at your word together. We pray that you'd illuminate your word to our hearts through your spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at present... Our family doesn't have any pets. I think that that is something that my, my, uh, most of my household would probably be happy if I changed. I don't plan on changing that anytime soon. But I have to tell you, even though we don't have any pets, my attention is easily gripped by interesting animal videos that people share online. I don't know why I enjoy watching them as much as I do, but I definitely do. And I've noticed they make my, my wife crack up as well. Just this week, I was watching a uh, video that somebody had posted of a family that had adopted not just one dog or two dogs. They said they were going to be like foster, foster uh, care for dogs, and yet every dog that is brought to their house they seem to adopt. So they're up to five now. And, uh, and they were, all these dogs like swimming in their backyard pool, and so it was a fun video to watch, watching these dogs swim, watching these dogs have fun. All the happiness that those dogs were feeling was making me feel happy. 
few weeks ago, I saw another video. It was actually a video of an elephant. And it wasn't, it, it, it ended, I liked how it ended, but the, the majority of the video wasn't very happy. Uh, it was a video of an elephant, that, and I don't know where it was. I don't know if it was in India or someplace like that, uh, but it was a video of an elephant that got stuck in a ravine. And so it was stuck in the ravine trying to climb out, and as, as it was doing that, the walls of the ravine weren't packed down enough, so it would kind of step with its great weight on, on the walls, and then you'd just have a whole bunch of dirt that would crumble, and then the elephant would just kind of slide back down the ravine a little bit more and a little bit more. It kept trying to escape. Everything it tried uh, didn't work, and it became completely exhausted in the process. And it was actually very sad to see. But the cool thing was, nearby there was a construction crew, and that construction crew decided that they were going to intervene and actually try and help this elephant. I don't know how close you would choose to get to an elephant, uh, but they didn't seem too terribly afraid to get near this elephant. And so they, uh, they decided to help, and what they did was they took a large excavator, they took a large digger, and um, they began carving out one side of the ravine and basically making it like steps so that the elephant could work its way up the side of the ravine. And the interesting thing that I thought was pretty cool was that the elephant, it seemed to understand what these men were trying to do for it and uh, that they were trying to help. And so the elephant, she, she tried to, to get up the side of the ravine. She made a few additional attempts. She's trying to use these steps that these guys are creating with the excavator, but she was so worn out that even with this help, she was struggling to actually accomplish this, and she was really struggling, and, and the dirt still kept giving way. And so after a whole bunch of attempts, and you're watching this, and you're seeing this elephant struggle, and you can just see in just the demeanor of this beast that, that it's just completely exhausted. Uh, she found herself losing footing again. You could tell she was giving up. And then the man that was driving the excavator apparently got a good idea, and what he did was he brought the digging arm of that machine behind the elephant and very gently just placed it behind the elephant so the elephant could kind of lean back on it when it started to lose its footing. And then he guided the elephant just gently with like the nudge of that and the ability to kind of lean back on it. He, he guided it up the ravine until it was able to get its footing at the very top and work its way out and then rejoin and reconnect with the herd. And as I watched it, I thought, all right, that might be one of the coolest videos I've seen in a very long time where you have man, elephant, and machine. All Like, it's all the good things. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it, it was very entertaining to watch, but, um, but it, it, it kind of told a story. You know, it brought you along the process because you could just see that exhaustion in the elephant. You could see that the, the elephant was pretty much ready to give up on itself and give up on its situation. And I bring that up because if you ever gone through a season where you were facing a variety of challenges, where you were facing a, a variety of struggles, and you just honestly, when you thought about it, you felt too weak to handle it? Do you ever go through a season like that? You just felt like, you're like, I've tried all the things that I could think of. I've tried a whole bunch of things, but I just feel so worn out. I just feel so exhausted. And, and it's easy when you get to a spot like that to just say to yourself, you're like, I think I'm just going to give up. Like, I've tried all the things I could think of. I think I'm just going to give up. So without a doubt, we need strength to deal with life's trials. We need strength to deal with life's challenges. And I'm grateful to, to know that the Lord offers that strength to His children. And what I like about the portion of Scripture that we just looked at, and we're going to revisit it a piece at a time here from Ephesians chapter 3, you have the Apostle Paul, he takes time here 
to explain the fact that the Lord supplies the strength that we need right when we need it most and in the way that we need it most. And so there's a variety of things that Paul illustrates here in this portion of Scripture, but one of the things that I like that he points out here, and this is very different than what I hear uh, typically spoken of culturally, but he talks about the fact here that our greatest form of strength doesn't come from us. Now, just think about that statement before we reread the portion of Scripture where he says it. Our greatest form of strength doesn't come from us. That is not a very culturally common thought. Culturally speaking, people try to tell us that that everything we need we'll find inside of us, and it doesn't actually work that way. If you look at what it says here in Ephesians 3.14, let me reread that verse and a couple verses after it, but Paul says it this way. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, so it's talking about the things, you know, that the Lord has this, just the the riches of His glory, the things that only He can supply, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. Let's think about the verses that we finished up with last week, the verses that come right before this portion of Scripture. And in those verses, the verses immediately preceding these statements, you have the Apostle Paul making it very clear that he was in the midst of a season of suffering. He doesn't mince words about it. He just openly declares it and says, all right, this is, this is what's going on. I'm in the midst of a season of suffering. Now, I don't get the impression that it was the worst suffering he had ever experienced, But it certainly was high on the list. It certainly wasn't pleasant. If you remember the context that he was in, Paul remained in Rome under home confinement while he was, uh, and by the way, that was at his own expense. So he's in Rome, confined in a home, at his own expense, waiting for a trial before the civic authorities. He's waiting and waiting and waiting, and it stretched for years. We know that it went at least two years, but some people believe it actually may have gone even a little bit longer than that. But we know it went at least two years. And even though Paul, during that time, was able to regularly welcome visitors to Rome, so when people would come to Rome, they would come and they would visit the Apostle Paul, I also get the impression that he greatly missed the liberty that he once had to be able to freely travel, and I think that any of us could identify with that, and all of us have tasted a little bit of what that's like in a short period of time, and he had to deal with that for years, for years. It wasn't pleasant. But in the midst of that, you have Paul confident that God had a purpose for what he was going through. You know, he didn't lose, he didn't lose hope. He was confident that God had a purpose for all this. He was also very confident that he could bring his concerns before the Lord in prayer. And so that's what Paul regularly chose to do. But the cool thing is, when you look at his words here, we see that Paul wasn't only praying for himself. As he brought his needs and his concerns before the Lord in prayer, he wasn't just praying for himself. He spent a lot of his time praying for the church in Ephesus and for believers throughout the world. He was lifting them up before the Lord and asking the Lord to intervene on their behalf as well. So that's pretty generous of the guy when you consider his circumstances. But when you look at this sort of thing, you realize, okay, this is an example of what it looks like when our faith matures, because when our faith matures, we don't spend all our time just focused on our own needs. We also look to the needs of others and lift them up before the Lord. And so Paul was, was doing that. He was praying for himself. He was praying for the church. Now, when you're in a position of spiritual leadership like the Apostle Paul was, if, you're, if your heart's in the right spot, what you end up having happen to you is that you start developing a great concern 
for the spiritual growth of the people that you're leading and influencing. You think of them often. They don't leave your mind. They stay on your mind. You're always thinking about them. You lift them up before the Lord. It becomes part of your daily exercise. It becomes part of your daily practice, praying for the people whose whose, uh, spiritual life you're concerned for. You ask God to intervene on their behalf, much like a loving parent prays for their children. Do you ever catch your parents praying for you when you're a kid? I've mentioned from time to time, I'll never forget when I was in seventh grade and, and I was, it was past my bedtime, but I decided to kind of leave my room and I was probably going to the kitchen to get food or get something to drink and I actually caught my mother praying for me out loud in our living room. And it had, I never told her that I caught her, but I just stood there and listened and I thought, I mean, like, wow, so this is what my mom prays for me. And she felt compelled to pray out loud and I overheard the things she was praying about. And it had an impact on me. And when you look at what the Apostle Paul is expressing here, he's talking like somebody in a parental role where he's genuinely concerned for the group of people that he's leading. He's praying for them like a parent prays for a child. And so Paul was doing the very thing for believers that he was doing that very thing for these believers that he's addressing this letter to. You know, he's spending time in prayer for them, but also showing them a demonstration of the importance of prayer and the power that comes to us as we pray. And so he asked the Lord to make them strong. He asked the Lord to give them his strength and to intervene on their behalf. And I love how Paul makes that point. I love the fact that when he does this, he makes it clear to them that he's praying for their strength but he also wants them to understand how that strength is going to be obtained. And I think that this is something immensely practical for you and I living in the era in which we live in right now. One of the most popular categories of books that you will find in any bookstore are the self-help books. And some of them are very good, and some of them are, are just silliness, right? And one of the mistakes that we can make as believers is going through our life thinking that we are the source of our own strength or that we are the source of our own uh, wisdom, or that we can handle all things in our own strength. And that's a mistake to go through life like that. And so Paul wanted the church to understand that God supplies strength, but he does it a very specific way. So here's what he was explaining here. Now, first of all, by background, I think we all understand or should understand that the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, Scripture makes it clear that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, He moves inside of you. He he takes up residence inside of you. He indwells you. So you're not just talking about God at a distance. You're not talking about God on the outside. Scripture is very clear that as believers in Christ living under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, He takes up residence within us. He moves in. He lives inside of you. And through him, we're granted the power that we need to navigate the things that we deal with in this world. And this is one of the benefits. I I don't know if you think about this frequently, but I think this is something that we as believers should really thank God for, because we live in an era where the Lord's doing some amazing things. And Jesus even told us during the course of his earthly ministry, he says, look, it's to your benefit that I go, because when I go, what's going to happen is the the Father and I, we're going to send you the Helper. We're going to send you the Holy Spirit, and He's going to live in you, and He's going to empower you, and He's going to remind you of all the things that I taught you while I was here. And you're going to have His counsel, and you're going to have His help, and you're going to have His his power. 
You know, Jesus goes through all sorts of details in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 and even talks about some of these things in John chapter 17. It's a good section to kind of revisit at some point if you want to kind of see how this works. But let me just show you a couple verses from John chapter 14 and what Jesus happens to say about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and how he works in the lives of believers. So Jesus said this, and he's talking to his disciples and he's explaining to them some things that they would not have naturally known, but he explains, he says, look, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a good start for any of us, right? If I claim to be a disciple of Christ, if I say that I love Jesus, I'll I'll tell you how you can notice it. If I actually listen to what he says, if I say I love him, but do whatever I feel like doing, that shows that I love who? Me, right? And most people on this earth, who do they love more than anyone? Themselves, right? And Jesus says, but here's the deal. If you love me, this is how it'll be obvious. You'll keep my commandments, out of love. That will, that will motivate you to keep my commandments. You'll love me, and you'll say, well, because I love him, him who loved me first, I'm going to keep his commandments. I'm actually going to listen to what he said. And then he goes on, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that's one of the benefits that we experience as believers who live in the era after Christ's resurrection and ascension back to heaven. Because after his ascension, what happened? What happened the day of Pentecost? From that point on, believers, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he's not just with us as he was for the apostles as they're hearing Jesus teach this. At that point, prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was with them but now living under this new covenant. As believers in Jesus Christ, part of the church, He will be in you. In you. That's a pretty cool reality. That's a pretty cool blessing that you and I get to experience, that the Holy Spirit... And some people say the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. Right? Don't you think? Mark, I, can, I heard that like involuntary response on your part there. It's true, though, isn't it? It's almost like we forget that the, that the Holy Spirit exists. And yet Jesus said, look, it's to your benefit that I go because look what he's going to do. He's going to help you. He's going to counsel you. And he's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. He will be in you. And so Paul was now writing about these things in a very uh, applicable way, right? He's writing to the church to remind these believers that they would have the strength that they needed, but that that strength was not going to find its source in them. It wasn't going to be a natural form of, of strength. Now, again, most of the humanistic philosophies, or I guess I could even say all of the humanistic philosophies that I hear espoused in our day are trying to convince us that we have everything we need in us already. I have good friends that believe that, that we have everything we need in us already. Well, we don't. Because if we did, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to come and rescue us. We wouldn't have needed Jesus to come and, and, and do for us what he's done. But he came to, to offer to us what we were lacking. He didn't come to give to us what we already had. He came because we had a need that we couldn't meet. We needed Him. We were not sufficient in and of ourselves. But we do have the privilege to welcome Jesus to dwell in our hearts through faith. And that's what Paul was reminding the church at Ephesus all about when he was saying these things. He was expressing that here. And as Paul speaks of the heart, 
right? The way he phrases it here, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So let me even reread the statement before he says, that according to the riches of his glory, that he, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, right? Through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What a blessing, right? We don't have God at a distance. We have the indwelling presence of Christ. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege to welcome Christ to dwell within us through faith, just like Paul is expressing here. And by the way, when he's talking about this idea of Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, understand what he's getting at when he says that. When he talks about heart, you know, I mean, and we, we use this phraseology, right? We, we talk like this. When I say I have something in my heart, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the center of my emotions. I'm talking about the center of my will, right? In many respects, you could even say you're, we're talking about like the center of our thinking, the center of our intellect, right? The full person. And if we welcome Christ to reign in our hearts, the center of our emotion, the center of our will, the center of our intellect, what we're going to do is we're going to see a demonstration of His power. We're saying, in, I'm inviting you to reign in my life. I'm inviting you to call the shots. And I think that the more we welcome the reign of Christ in our day-to-day life, the more we'll become convinced that the greatest form of inner strength that we will ever experience is not something that found its source in us. It's found in Him, and it's revealed through Him. And this is the type of thing that the Apostle Paul was praying for the church to understand. That no, in and of yourself, you don't have what you need, but what you need is available to you. As you trust in Jesus Christ, He will dwell in your heart. As you trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will be in you, in your inner being, strengthening you in a way that doesn't just have temporary benefit. Our strength is limited. His strength is not. Paul goes on to talk a little bit more about the strength of God and the strength of Christ and how this this operates in our life, but also how we come to understand it. And here's the thing. We're talking about spiritually understood things. These are things that are not naturally understood. So even to understand them and even to appreciate them, it takes the strength of Christ to actually comprehend the love of Christ or the presence of Christ or, or the, the fact that Christ is operating in our lives. Look at what he says here in the second half of verse 17 down to verse 19. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pause there for just a second. Um, During the course of my life, I've had the opportunity to own and purchase four different homes. Two of those homes were investment properties. So they were homes that we didn't live in. We rented them out. But two of them were our primary residence. And uh, prior to living here in Langhorne, we moved here in 2008, uh, but in 2002, we bought a home in Plymouth, Pennsylvania. And uh, by the way, just for fun, take a look at property prices in Northeast Pennsylvania and compare them to where we live here. And uh, I will confess to you, it took a couple years of us living here before I got over the sticker shock of moving to Bucks County. And when I would tell people where I moved, they're like, yeah, it seems like it's very aptly named, right? Bucks County, you know, it takes 
a lot of bucks to, to, you know, to buy the house down there, right? And, um, but I, I remember when we bought that home in Plymouth, I, I remember looking at it, I was like, I, I love this house. It looks, I really liked how it looked. Uh, I was really grateful for it. But one of the things that, um, that it needed was a lot of work. And that's been kind of the history of every house we bought. One of them didn't really need much work, but the other three absolutely needed a lot of work. And that's kind of how you get in, right? It's like, if I want to be able to afford this, I got to buy something that needs some work. And so you buy something that needs some work, and then what do you do? spend the rest of your life working on it, right? So I remember when we bought that house, it was during the fall, and I remember thinking, all right, there's some outside work that needs to be done. I better tackle that first because I'm going to lose the ability to do that once the weather turns. And I was looking around the property, and I thought, all right, let me start from worst to not that bad. And one of the things that made it to the worst section was these very large rhododendrons that were growing right in front of the house. They were right at the foundation. It didn't look good that they were there. They were very, very tall. They were, uh, you know, touching the gutters and, and all of that. And I just remember looking at that. I was like, all right, these should be much further from the house if they were going to be planted. They shouldn't have been planted right here where they have the potential to potentially damage the foundation. And so I thought, I need to get those out of there. I want to get, I want, uh, that was early on my list. I was like, I want to get those out of there. And so I took a, uh, took like a, just a small electric chainsaw that I had handy, and I chopped all the branches off. So it was just the stump. And I was like, all right, now I just have the stump. There was two of them. And I was like, all right, let me get this out. And so do you ever try and remove something like that? Why do we always do it the dumb way that results in permanent injury to our body? But that's what I did. So I, I, I started like pushing it, and I was like, okay, it's moving a little bit, right? So you push it, and then you kind of pull it, and then you're pushing it, and then you're pulling it, and you're like, come on, loosen. Almost like it's a tooth, you know? You're trying to like, like work this tooth out of the ground, and every time you think you're getting close, you're not, you know? And I remember pushing this thing and, and pulling this thing and then thinking to myself, you have one other stump that you have to do this to. Like, this isn't just one. And I remember also, and it was at a spot, too, where it wouldn't have been very easy to do something like, like take a chain and kind of wrap that around it and then tie it to a truck or whatever. And I don't know if you've ever seen any videos of people doing that, but half the time the chain breaks and then smashes out the back windows and does all that. I was like, I don't even want to do that. I'm just going to get this out by hand. And I worked on that, worked on that, worked on that, and then I'd get sick of that one, and I'd go over to the other stump, and I'd work on it and work on it. And I remember thinking, now I know how I will spend the rest of my life. Removing these two stumps, this is going to take the rest of my living years, or it's just going to kill me. And, uh, and finally, finally, you know, you like every now and then you get a little bit of hope because you hear a little crackle, and you're like, now you're going to move. And it's like, yeah, you'll be done in four hours, John. Four hours. I don't know how long it took me, but it felt like it took forever, and it involved a lot of pain. But finally, I got those stumps out, and I remember when I finally got them out just thinking, I was like, all right, that was absolutely miserable. There has to be a better way to do this. But in my mind, I thought that was the way that, that it was going to work. And part of the problem was is that they were rooted so well. They were just rooted extremely well. And if something's rooted extremely well, it's very hard to budge, which is what comes to my mind when I look at how Paul phrases these things here in this portion of Scripture. He says, and you being rooted and grounded in love. You be rooted and grounded in love. So when you think about your relationship with Christ, when you think about your life in Christ, how deeply rooted does it seem to be to you? Does it feel deeply rooted? You know, how easy is it to make you budge? Maybe that's a good way we could ask that. You know, how easy is it to make you budge? 
How connected are you to the love of Christ? Do you understand the significance of his love and how significant his love really is? Think about the the demonstration of Christ's love for us when when you, you compare that to these realities. Jesus loved us when we were still his enemies. That's what Scripture says, that we were his enemies. We weren't just ambivalent to God. We were living as enemies of God, and yet he still loved us even when we were his enemies. Jesus loved us even though we vicariously participated in his crucifixion by making it necessary. Sometimes when we read the stories, the accounts of his crucifixion in the Gospels, we tend to think of that as other people doing that to Jesus. We bear culpability for that happening because it was our sin that made it necessary for him to endure all of that. Don't look at that and think somebody else's fault. Don't blame it on the Romans. Don't blame it on the Jewish leaders at the time. That's my fault. That's your fault that he had to go through all of that. And yet he still loved us, even though we made all of that necessary. Jesus loves us, even though we still tend to be prone to rebellion. I've been a believer in Christ for most of my life, but I have to tell you, I daily pray that I don't go off in a direction of rebellion against the Lord because I'm very conscious of the fact that I still have that old nature that sometimes I think gets bored. And it's like, hey, I haven't shown up in any visible way in a while. Let's get in trouble. It's like, no, right? No. Now, I joke about that, but the truth is we're prone to rebel. All of us, whether you've been a believer for most of your life or you've been a believer for five minutes, we are prone to rebel against the Lord. And the Lord loves us in the midst of our proclivity to rebel. Jesus loves us even though there's nothing that we could offer him that he didn't already have. There's nothing we could offer him that he actually needed. Yet he loved us. And so you have Paul here saying, I want you to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. I want you to comprehend it. I want you to get it. And as our faith in Christ matures, our understanding of his nature and his love should be magnified. When we grow closer to him, what we start realizing is just how far we were from him to begin with. And I think as we grow in holiness, and that's what happens in your life, as as you and I, as we walk with the Lord day in and day out, He produces holiness in our life. We grow in holiness. And as we grow in holiness, we start to realize just how entranced we were by sin to begin with, because He starts to help us to see the value of something better. And so Paul here was praying for the believers to develop an understanding of the love of Christ, in a deep way. The way he describes it is like in every direction. He says, uh, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love, Christ's love in every direction, deep and wide, right? But to understand all of that, we we need to be empowered by Christ. That's not something that we can have just a natural understanding of. We're not strong enough or smart enough to get it with our own limited understanding. But his strength is sufficient in the midst of our weakness. And as we draw closer to him in this manner, you have Paul speaking of us being filled with the fullness of Christ. We're being filled with all, he says, filled with all the fullness of God. So he's speaking of living in such a way that we develop an appreciation for the fact that there is now nothing lacking in our our relationship with the Lord, that the Lord supplies all that we need for life and godliness. And that truly, when we have Jesus, we have everything we actually need in the midst of this world. Now, growing up, uh, our family went through a stretch from the time I was about age eight 
pretty much uh, toward the, till the end of, of high school, where we went through a long stretch where I would just say, probably the best way to, to describe it is just poverty, right? Long stretch of, of, of poverty during that period of time. And so I used to daydream about a variety of things. And I used to daydream about things like someday having a nice home. And I actually think that that's, like some people joke with me about uh, like the care that I provide my lawn. And I was like, why do, I used to think about, I was like, why do I care about my lawn so much? Like, why did I just pay to have it aerated? And then I had the guy overseed it, but then I overseeded on top of the overseeding that he did. And I was like, why did I do that? Like, why, who cares, right? Like, my lawn has no eternal consequence. And it dawned on me, um, it's like, why do I care about that? And I think it really comes down to the fact of, it's like my heart and my mind go back to that period of time where we were, you know, living in government housing, going through that long stretch of, of really, it was just poverty. And, um, and I think to that, and it's like, yeah, you see other things differently. And so I used to think, I used to daydream a lot about, you know, maybe someday having a nice house, or maybe someday having, you know, healthy finances, or maybe someday having cars that didn't break down in the center of town in front of, in front of your friends. I remember at one point, this is terrible. I debated whether I was going to tell you this, but now it makes me laugh. I, I was in sixth grade, and uh, we used to have dances at the YMCA uh, every Friday night in town, and it was for all the students in town, so I always used to go, and there was a seventh grade girl that I liked, <laughs> and, and she liked me, and, uh, <laughs> and so I got, up, I got up the nerve, and I asked her out, and she was my girlfriend, and we were at different schools. I was in sixth grade, she was in seventh grade, felt like king of the world. King of the world, right? And uh, I remember the one day I was in our car, and we were in the center of town, and the car broke down right in the center of town. And in a panic, my mom yelled, she's like, and my family just called me Johnny. She's like, Johnny, get out and push. And I was like, oh no. And we're like right in the middle of an intersection. And I get out and I start pushing this thing. And would you know that that girl, my new girlfriend and her friends are now walking on the sidewalk, because school, her school had just let out. So there's a whole parade of hundreds of students, including her, as I'm pushing this broken-down car in the middle of town with very little help, trying to like, get this thing out of the road as a sixth grader. And I remember thinking, if Jesus comes back right now, I will be really cool with that. Like, he can come back right now. Like, please spare me from this moment. And it gets even better. She broke up with me afterward, right? She broke up with me afterward. Can you blame her, you know? I thought she'd be impressed with my strength. Somehow she wasn't. It's like, hey, isn't that your, your new boyfriend pushing that junk car in the middle of town? It's like, yeah, I can understand why she didn't want to have to deal with that. And so I used to think during that season of my life, I thought, you know what, like, if you get those things squared away, like, if you, if you get the house squared away, maybe if you get the car squared away, get your finances to a healthy spot, then, um, you know, then you'll probably be pretty good in this world, right? Now, here's the thing. At this season of my life, the Lord's chosen me to bless, with, bless me with all those things that at one point I was lacking. Every one of those categories he's taken care of. It's all taken care of. All taken care of. And here's what I've discovered on the other side of that. All I ever needed was Jesus. He is sufficient, and there is nothing in this world that has ever satisfied my heart like him. He's the only thing that ever had that capacity to satisfy my heart. There's not a single thing in this world that I've daydreamed about getting or obtaining that ever was able to satisfy my heart like him. 
And so here you have the Apostle Paul saying, and he's, he's under home confinement as he's saying it. And he's like, listen, this is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to, to really wrap your mind around. How deep Christ's love for you is. How broad his love for you is. But he's saying the only way you're going to get it is if God opens your eyes to see it. And I like the fact that in two contrasting seasons of my life, I could see the Lord saying, you know what will satisfy your heart? Nothing else but me. And if you're ever trying to chase anything in this world that you think is going to satisfy your heart and it's not Jesus, let me just tell you, only Jesus will satisfy that void. Nothing else will. And then Paul ends this section with, a, uh, with something that I think is a great encouragement. And he's basically telling us, look, get ready for God to exceed your expectations. Get ready because he's going to do it. Look at what it says here in the, the closing verses, in verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So you have here, we're at the halfway point now of the book of Ephesians. And up to this point, you have what Paul's doing. He's he's explaining the the behind-the-scenes work that the Lord is accomplishing. And now in the second half of the book, what he's going to demonstrate is how we're supposed to live in response to all this behind-the-scenes work that the Lord is doing. But here's what I know about my understanding of what God has done. He is able to do even more than what I'm able to wrap my mind around. He can do more than I can imagine in my most elaborate daydreams. And when I think about that, it makes me wonder if my prayers are way too small. They've got to be. If he can do far beyond I can imagine, well, the only things I know to pray about are what? The stuff I can imagine, right? And here Paul's saying, yeah, he can do far beyond the stuff that you're able to imagine. So I'm, well, I'm wondering, like when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I'm wondering if the Lord's waiting for me and you to begin praying with real faith, the kind of faith that's willing to ask him to do impossible things. Because I think a lot of our prayers are just us asking God to do very possible things. Very everyday things. And that's fine. Pray about those things too. Pray about possible things, but also pray about impossible things. And I think in all honesty, we come to the Lord with really safe and sanitized prayers. You know, and I think we ask his intervention in ways that seems to indicate that maybe there's a part of us that's not really confident that God's going to act on our behalf. That you might do this stuff for other people, but maybe he wouldn't actually do that for us. But here you have Paul telling us what? That God is able to do far beyond what we've ever asked him to do. You do way more than your mind has the the capacity to imagine. So he can save the most distant person. So think about the people that you pray for that maybe at this point you've even given up praying for because it just feels like they're just so distant from God. He could save the most distant person. He could change the hardest of heart. He can correct societal problems. Sometimes I look around and I think, Lord, this just seems impossible. It just seems so impossible. Yeah, naturally speaking, it's impossible. But supernaturally speaking, it's not impossible. He can fix the most messed up situations. In fact, he promises, when you look at how Scripture unfolds, he promises to restore the entire creation and then rule and reign here in perfect justice with perfect benevolence. That's his promise. That's what he's given you and I to look forward to. So as we trust in Jesus, as we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, please keep in mind, that the same power that will one day restore this entire creation 
is already at work within us. And it's already accessible to us. And that's not a statement about a future reality. That's a statement that's a, a statement of fact based on our present reality, based on what Scripture has already revealed to us. I have to tell you, I became a pastor nearly 25 years ago, and just about every day of my life in the, in the midst of that time has allowed me to speak with many brothers and many, many sisters in Christ who are experiencing trials and struggles of all different kinds, some of their own making, some completely out of their control. And more often than not, here's how the conversation goes. More often than not, I've also heard uh, brothers and sisters in Christ express the opinion that they were powerless to do anything about their struggles. So they felt powerless to overcome their temptations. They felt powerless to overcome their despair or their conflict or their sorrow or their fear. And then you look at what this scripture is telling us and what it's revealing to us as Paul gets to the halfway point of this book as he's trying to set us up to how we're supposed to respond. And he wants to make sure that we know one more thing before we get into that second half of the book. And what he's telling us here is we have not been left powerless in this world. So what that says to me is, I guess I should stop preaching a message to my heart that tells me that I'm powerless in the midst of this world. And I guess you should stop preaching a message to your heart that tells you that you're powerless in the midst of this world, because you're not. That's what he's getting at here. He's like, you are not powerless. And if you've given up and you think, and you, think you have no power... Reread this and believe it and live it out. And let's get ready for God to start exceeding our expectations. Not just meeting our expectations, or not even, I think sometimes we pray and it's almost like we expect God to let us down. And here Paul's saying, no, he could do way beyond anything you could ask. He can do way beyond anything you can imagine, but he does want us to trust him. If we come to him, Just like James says in the book of James, don't come and ask things not actually believing that God can do it. You know, if you're going to pray, if you're going to lift these things up before the Lord, believe that He actually can do these things. But again, that's going to require some strength. Even to just believe that, that's going to require the strength of God. And the Father will supply the strength that we require to do that. In fact, He already has through the Son and through the Spirit. We have what we need, but it didn't come from us So as Paul was praying for the early believers to walk in the strength of Christ, what I want to encourage us to do is to join him in that prayer and begin praying that very same thing for ourselves, but also being people who look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, who look at the church in general, and we begin praying that for those that we love as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at something like this and to think about the fact that you are good and that you see our needs and you meet those needs, that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness through your son, Jesus Christ, through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have not left us powerless in this world. We have your power, and you've given us access to your throne. We can boldly and confidently come before you because we know that as you look at us, you see your Son, Jesus Christ, within us, and you give us an audience before yourself. You allow us to come into your presence. You allow us to request things of you. You encourage us time and time again to ask for your intervention. So, Lord, you know the things that we've got 
going through our minds that we think are just absolutely impossible. Things that, that we look at and we think, all right, there, like there is nothing that can fix this. But Lord, right now, we just want to lift up those impossible things before you. Whatever we're putting in that category, whether it be a, a friend or family member who as of yet doesn't know you and just seems so distant, or whether it be conflict that seems like it can't be resolved, or whether it be trials or things like that that we're dealing with in our day-to-day circumstances that, that we look at and we think, I don't know what to do to fix this. I don't know how to correct this. Lord, we are now asking you to do those impossible things, and we're not asking in a timid way. We're asking in accordance with what you've just taught us from your word. So, Lord, we pray that you would intervene in every one of these circumstances that's presently burdening our minds and burdening our hearts. We lift it up before you, and we're just so grateful for the fact that as you reveal these words in in your word, this isn't just fluff, this isn't just filler, this isn't just something that you say but you don't actually mean. This is something you inspired to be written down so that we would understand what a life of faith actually looks like. So, Lord, thank you for the privilege to be able to walk with you. Thank you for the privilege to grow in our, in our relationship with you. And thank you for the strength that you supply for us to comprehend things that are beyond our understanding and for us to live things out that are beyond our natural abilities. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.